Hello, and welcome to Plants and Pipettes, the plant podcast where we talk about molecular biology, things happening in the plant world, stuff that we like, cats, general things that make us rant, um, <laughs> many things. <laughs> we talk about things. I don't know, Yoram, you're just like standing and staring at the screen and it made me very nervous just then. <laughs> yeah, that was the point of it. Um, I just wanted to <laughs> create like an awkward silence that you just fill with chatter and it worked. I will, the, the problem is, you know me, I will I'm just fill it head. forever and yeah. <laughs> Talk and also, I mean, obviously, the longer COVID isolation goes on, the less capable I get of talking full stop. Um, <laughs> yeah. Even I'm at the stage now where even leaving voice messages, so like using a WhatsApp or, or um, Facebook, and instead of typing, saying stuff, I prefer to do that because I'm slow at typing and I'm bad at typing and people can never work out what I'm saying. But I can't even work out how to use my words to put a proper uh, a proper message these days, like a voice message. It just yeah the words they don't come <laughs> yeah i feel you i went to my new place of work that i started working here for in april so in the midst of the crisis uh for the first time like a week or two ago now um it was really weird because usually like you have work that's tied to a place and for me for the first time yeah it was completely disjointed like i've I'm sitting at the desk now that I've been working on for different projects over like the last couple of months. Um, and suddenly I was at this like specific place um, that's linked to my work, but I don't really have an office there yet. Um, mm. And then also... And it's, you probably it's don't an, need to for a while, right? Yeah. I mean, and it's also university campus. There? And so they don't really have anything going on right now. So you come to this very deserted place and you meet like 10 people on a university campus where usually there's like hundreds mm. um, and everything is shut down. All of the chairs are on the tables and everything is just in this weird hibernation state. Um, so yeah, that was, that was an eerie experience um, to check out my, my workplace for the first time in a, in a COVID crisis. Yeah, there was definitely a point, I think in, I guess, May or June, early June, when I realized I had been working from home longer than I had been working in the office because I also started my job fairly, my new job fairly close to when the crisis happened. Um, it's like, yeah, I I don't know. Going back to the office, people are talking about it, but it, it's not going to happen this year is, is the current idea. And even then, it just, it seems so unrealistic now. It just doesn't seem like... Yeah. I also I, I, I can't imagine I really can't imagine how it will um continue, how we will come back to sort of a normal pre corona. But it also doesn't look like it will happen anytime soon, so we don't really have to worry about transition back into this type of, of work. Um Yeah, that's that's the thing for me. Like I mean, talking about going back is makes me feel very stressed because I'm scared about going back when there's not enough safety precautions. But at the same time, thinking about not going back is very stressful because I'm at the stage where like I'm just done with isolation. Like I mean, I'm in a country where I know like two other people who live in the same country as me. I moved very close, um, very shortly before the lockdown. And I'm just done. I'm done with it. Um so I want yeah. to kind of interact with people, but I also don't want to go back to working without having those those physical... I mean, COVID is not going to end anytime soon, so the idea of going back seems bizarre and... Yeah. Yeah. 
I think, I mean, I speak for all of us when I can say that COVID can go eat a duck. <laughs> Done. <laughs> Finished. Like. Yeah. Yeah. I went to <sighs> a concert yesterday, which was really weird in times of COVID. Um, oh, God. Because. How does it work? Uh, it, it was, was an open, outdoor, it, right? It was an outdoor concert. It was okay. in a, in a um, public swimming pool, like an outdoor swimming pool on a beach. And uh, so when you buy two tickets, you have like your little spot there and you like two meters apart from everybody else around you. And you're told multiple times during the event that you have to stay in your seated area. And then also all of the like walkways to the bar and the toilets and everything, there's like single lanes, uh, like one directional lanes that you have to um, that you have to take. So you don't run into a crowd of people. And somehow um, this made my the, the perfect type of concert for somebody who's getting old like me. Um, because you don't really you don't want to you're not stuck in the anyway. crowd like it's very easy to get to the bar because the, because of the distancing and everything um, <laughs> the lines aren't very long and then you're sitting during the concert um, and I sat first front row um, so very close to the to the action but you can like relax there it's like a living room concert um, but just outside with with more people uh, and yeah it didn't it like it felt safer than traveling on the subway in berlin um because yeah every there was there were all of these precautions that i didn't feel like i was too exposed there it, it was nice like it i could get used to this sort of experience to sit like on a summer night in the open air on a seat with some music and you can like dance in your area but you're like not being pushed around by other people you can sit down when you danced enough um lots of things you can't do in a regular yeah. venue and usually I was the one in like when we went to like indoor concerts, I would be like front area where all the mosh pit happening and so on. Um, but I, but when you say usually, you mean like 10 years ago when you were young and... Two, three years ago. But for mm. since I turned 30, I realized that I was like slowly gravitating more to the edge, but like between the dancing action and the standing people. And now I'm mm. like even retreating further back where you can like lean on the, the fences that they have in front of the sound engineer. Um, you can then like lean there and have your arms crossed and like nod your head to the music and don't really move and then go to the bar to get another beer so yeah that's like covid covid concerts um there's some things that i would like to see flat in the future like i would go again to a, a socially social distant concert even if we are not at risk of being exposed to a de deadly virus i guess that only works in summer that's the problem right yeah. i mean this is like i i can see a lot of people adapting now so again um sort of like cafes or, or small business restaurants are opening, but with outdoor seating and again, socially distanced and everything like that. But I'm not sure how that transitions then as the months get colder, especially, I mean, in Germany, it, it gets proper cold and in London, not so much, but yeah, I wonder Yeah. what will the future bring? Yeah. We don't know and we don't want to think about it. So let's talk about plants. <laughs> let's talk about plants. the paper of the week so this week we're talking uh, about a paper that i picked it's called weed yield potential in controlled environment vertical farms by senthold asang um, from the lab of paul pg gothef uh, published in pnas in august 11th 2020 um and Who picked the paper you're on i picked the paper uh, <laughs> it will be important when we put like when we start playing the blame game right uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> so this is a paper, as the title says, about vertical farming. And I yeah. thought it might be interesting to talk a bit, little bit about like, what is vertical farming? Why do we care about it? Why, why is it cool? I mean, so basically the idea is that instead of going horizontal, we go up <laughs> vertical. Um, and I think the reason behind this is pretty obvious. And the first and most important reason is that we are running out of arable land. So there's only so much land on the planet where we can grow crops. And we've basically used that up already. Um, it's it's getting to a bad place. And on top of that, we have all of these um, human... We have all of these uh, human effects uh, on, on the environment, like we're damaging ecosystems, we're using up water, uh, we're spraying pesticides to keep our crops safe. Uh, and all of that is something that we can do different in vertical farms. Uh, we can set them up as circular systems. So instead of having the water evaporate from that's like pulled up through the roots into the leaves and then evaporate and go into the atmosphere, if we put a roof over it and put it into a closed building we can take the the vapors and condense them again and use the water mm. again to feed them again into the plants and so we use much less water um if we do if we do it indoors in a properly set up system and also because if we do it all indoors we can sort of lock out all of the diseases and pests and everything we don't really need to spray pesticides and we can have plants that are less stressed because they don't have to deal with fungal infections or bugs eating their leaves because we make sure that there's no fungal spores in the in the facility and that there's no bugs and nothing in there yeah mm. And finally, we yeah. can harvest all year round, right? Like if we put everything indoors and control the light and temperature and everything, we can make it like perfect conditions all the time. We don't have to follow seasons. We don't have to like stop growing stuff when it's fr uh, freezing outside. Uh, we can keep growing things all the time. Yeah, so for those of you who work in um, plant experimental research, this might sound very similar to just growing things in a growth chamber. Um, which you might know have its own problems, but I guess we'll get to that a bit later on. Um, so, so far people have kind of started testing the idea of doing vertical farming and doing various types of farming that are away from the traditional growing crops in the land, but it's not very successful in that what has been grown is not the normal crops that we used to feel, feed the world. It's things that like lettuce, some herbs, mushrooms, basically things that don't really have very many calories. So we've kind of gone to the first step where we can say, hey, we can grow things under these sort of strange vertical conditions, but the things we're growing are not that useful. Yeah, um, and we usually don't grow them on on soil or anything, so that also limits the type of things we can grow because we have to have them growing in hydroponics or aeroponics where the roots sit either directly in a, in a water bath with nutrients or they're constantly sprayed with water and not all of the plants like that and lettuce he uh, herbs and greens and mushrooms and so on although mushrooms are not really plants but we keep them in that list here now um they can deal with Edibles. that yeah they can can deal with that and um, for any of you who might listen to our other podcast, we have a plant book club that we run with Ellen Earhart. And a couple of episodes ago, we read a book by Stefano Mancuso. And one of the chapters of that book was about doing something similar to this, having this kind of self-contained um, growth facility, although in that case, it was floating 
growth facility that was like living on seawater basically and um, desalinifying, desalinating, desalinating, that is the word, um, the seawater <laughs> and using that to grow the crop. Um, but once again, this the crop there was lettuce, which is pretty much a useless crop as far as getting <laughs> any calories. Yeah, it's, it's crunchy. Just, it's cellulose and water, and um, none of that holds any benefit to the human body. Apart, I mean, apart from being hydrated, but you don't really eat lettuce when yeah. you are thirsty. Um, so yeah, um, there. That's why we are sort of now with vertical farms and with the growing world population that we have, and which is sort of the classic opener for any plant science topic. Um, we will need to have more food soon, and we will need to have more food on less land and have uh, to have uh, high calorie foods so not only lettuces and and uh, basil that won't be enough to to feed the world really Um, and also like as we mentioned in that context we do have this growing risk of climate change which not only comes with um for example warmer temperatures but also comes with less predictability um more like um severe events like heat waves um fires droughts so this is kind of a risk so the idea of growing things in very controlled environments and not having that added risk of losing all of the crops um is very appealing honestly It, it sounds nice and that's what this paper is talking about. They're talking about um, the potential of using wheat, uh, which is a high-calorie grain that's feeding a lot of people. In their paper, they're claiming that's supplying 20% of the calories and protein in human, um, which I found a little bit confusing because um, I know that wheat has some protein in it, the, the gluten, um, but I didn't know that it accounts for 20% of our protein, or I misunderstood the sentence there. Um, but yeah, it's maybe a, if you don't wash the caterpillars off, it's a little bit. Of, um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, to me, it was mostly a starchy food, right? It's mostly carbohydrates that we eat from that instead of proteins. Um, I actually, yeah, I wonder what, what is the protein content? It did say um, 20% of our um, plant based protein, not of our overall protein. This was oh, 20%. Okay. It wasn't including meat and, you know, animal products. Okay. But anyway, the point is it's a very important crop. Um, wheat is grown uh, across the world and uh, is used by so many different like cultures and therefore feeding a lot of people. Um, is it the number one crop in the world? It must be up there. It must be up there. I reckon one or two. I never know Maybe if rice it's is like, like corn that's grown a lot in the United States and uh, rice, rice that's, that's grown ac- uh, across the world essentially uh, in large mm. quantities. So I don't know which one of these is like on place one, two, three, but wheat is up there. It's very important. Okay, so what I want to make clear from the offset is that this paper is not actually growing. It's not building the vertical farms and growing the wheat. It's a modeling paper. And when I first got the um, email from Yoram saying this is what we're doing this week, I honestly thought I was going to see some vertical farms and I thought I was going to see some actual grain yields and this is a modeling paper. And I was a little bit disappointed by that. That's the truth. Um, yeah, uh, and I I can feel you there. Um, but so modeling is important. It's very very important. But like I was looking to see an image of a skyscraper filled with wheat fields. That, I mean, that's they, what I wanted in my life. They base they base their modeling off of an experiment. Uh, it's an experiment yes. that they did themselves. Um, it's an experiment that was done. Uh, let me just quickly pull up the name because I think they mentioned them quite, uh, a couple of times. Uh, Monnier and Bugby, 
Omonji and Bugby, um, they tested what would we have to do to grow wheat to put it on a spacecraft. Um, mm -hmm. Because when we think about space travel, we want to grow our own foods in, on spacecraft and we also need high calorie foods there. We can't just go with spinach and basil uh, to Mars. Um, And therefore, they did an experiment where they did like an indoor farming experiment with wheat. They used a dwarf variety, a variety that's only 50 centimeters tall, which is, I think, about half of what you usually find in wheat. Um, so a very short variety, and they were growing it indoors. And um, this was the basis for this modeling paper that we're talking about today. Okay, but then already from the offset to do the modeling, they started manipulating the parameters to try and optimize the growth beyond that that we could theoretically find on the spacecraft um so in the original experiment they used for example 20 hours of light here they switched that to continuous light to try and get more growth um the original um experiment also used what we call atmospheric co2 which is 330 parts per million guys the atmosphere does not have 330 parts per million anymore we have definitely exceeded that um but <laughs> Anyway, um, they went for even higher than current levels, which was um, 1,200 parts per million, again, to increase the plant's ability to really um, fix that carbon, pump out um, the, the, the yeah, biomass and, and grow as fast as it can. And they also made some kind of calculations based on the ability, as Yoram said, to grow things indoor and keep harvests running throughout the year using artificial lighting. And so they said that instead of just having a couple of harvests per year that you would have in the field, it's going to go up to five harvests per year. Only only one harvest. Usually it's really just one harvest because it takes a little bit over half a year for, for it to grow. And so you can't really grow it, grow two per year. Um, But even with normal wheat varieties, you would not be able to grow five. This is this is still the dwarf no, no, variety, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. But I'm saying like usually uh, with regular wheat varieties, oh, if yeah, we're growing uh -huh. them right now, we have one harvest per year. And they boosted that uh, in their modeling to five harvests per year because we only need 70 days for the wheat from, germ like from, from uh, planting it to harvesting it and then re restarting the cycle. And that's just enough to, to put in um, five harvests per year. And, and the important thing here is to note that you, you might imagine that with um, like all of the, the additions that they did with like the constant light, so they, they see 24 hours per day, they see light and the more CO2, which means there's more carbon dioxide that can be taken up. We talked about how that uh, has an effect on Rubisco, the carbon fixing enzyme, how it is less likely to make mistakes when the CO2 levels are high. So that also boosts photosynthesis rates. Um, mm. And all of that leads to just a faster metabolism. It doesn't mean that it uh, leads to more yield, at least in the modeling. It doesn't mean that if you put all of these conditions then your um then your wheat will produce more than what it would do in the field but it would do it in a much shorter time which is the big advantage that they get here in in the model mm -hmm. um, okay so, so they're not really cheating they're just like maximizing everything to the absolute optimal based on what we've seen yeah ever up until this point basically so as fast as it can go as you know as much light as like everything is fully optimized um no pests also no nutrient limitations no water limitations everything is like perfect for these plants they are happy happy plants 
also they they assume in their models so they start from the from the original experiment where the plants had a, a rather poor harvest index which is an index um describing how good the wheat performs as a wheat variety and they say um, and in their modeling they assume that somebody makes a dwarf variety that is as performant as the best varieties that we know today in the field um, and use that in their modeling as well so um, this I this I would say is cheating this is something where you're now like taking because I think the dwarf variety has some benefits about like the short life cycle so then to take those benefits and stack them with the benefits of, of the non-dwarf yeah. that seems a little bit like a we don't have that yet that's that's a long way away in, in my feeling yeah. i would say they, they, they assumed um a big portion of breeding having happened already to make mm -hmm. uh, a new wheat variety that's optimized for vertical farming that we don't have now and that could take anything between like five and 30 years to create depending on luck methods and knowledge about what is needed um, okay, so if we've got a wheat variety that performs as well as the normal wheat, the perfect wheats in the field, but is still also a dwarf variety that can therefore grow five harvests per year, grows under perfect conditions with no nutrient or water limitations, and is growing in stacks of 10 levels, um, so kind of like a high rise of 10 levels, then based on that, we could produce 600 times the average yield that we have today, 6,000 times no, on a per hectare basis. 6,000 times is uh, if we take these stacks of 10 and then we put 10 of these stacks on top of each other. Um, that's the, the number. Because 10 times 10. Yeah. <laughs> so 600. Yeah, so, so 600 like times we get from 10 levels and then if we do 10 blocks of 10, um, then we get 6,000 times the average yield per hectare that we have today. And to just imagine the, the levels, they, they say very simply, they say like our uh, dwarf variety grows 50 centimeters tall and we just assume that all the technology that we need to transport them and to put uh, to get water to their roots and everything takes another 50 centimeters. So we have one meter per level. So we build like a 10 level high stack um, and then we put... Uh, um, 10 of those stacks on top of each other so we have a 100 meter high stack of wheat growing on top of each other um, on uh, with a side length of like 100 by 100 meters which is a hectare um, then we have this production okay. system that produces 6,000 times as much as you would get of just growing wheat in this one hectare so let's talk about the good things here first I mean we can we can go from that and then we can kind of discuss some of like I think it's already clear the the issues that Yoram and I have. I mean this is like very idealized and it's it's almost um science fiction. It it really is almost science fiction in the way that it's it's presented. Um and the likelihood of this happening is, is quite low. And the most obvious thing is the costs to do this are insanely high. So you are now apart from even just the the physical structures themselves, which, okay, let's say that's a one-off build, to keep the conditions perfect, to have this lighting happening all the time, this is a very, very high cost. And the whole point of, cro of crops right now is that they basically grow in the field, and yes, we have to water them, yes, we're giving them nitrogen and phosphate maybe, but they're getting their energy from the sun, and we're taking that away. We're now saying we've got to give them light. Yeah, big problem. <laughs> Very big problem, and they even acknowledge that in the paper with saying that currently um, the cost to return ratio of these systems is forty six to one. So you put in forty six times more 
um, resources uh, into the system than you get out of the system. And they assume um, with some calculations that if if we innovate on pretty much everything that uh, con connected to vertical farms, we can can bring that cost down to six to one. So only spending six times the I think they mostly do it on a cost um, basis. So we spend $6 for every dollar that we produce in a vertical farm. Um, so still mm -hmm. a system at loss under the market prices that we have today. Um, so you could imagine a world where food becomes so scarce that suddenly the high price of the vertical farm makes it still financially um, valuable to, to run it because you can uh, sell the produce for, for more money. But And this is something that came up in the paper where they said that already a lot of the farming practices that we do have today, they don't necessarily run on a profit. There is a lot of government backing um, and programs yeah. to to help support production of food because it is so important. So even though it's not an economic winner, it is required for the population to survive, thrive and grow. So yeah, uh, maybe a six to one ratio is acceptable. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's after like perfect optimization after of the innovation yeah um but yeah we want to talk about what the good things about this and um this is something where vertical farms can shine um first of all we can use them in urban contexts so finding the, the land in an urban environment um to build a very tall tower and grow wheat or other products there um, is possible and then you can have very local food production and then you have very short distribution um, pathways so you don't have to spend a lot of energy on transport uh, of your product to the consumer so that could be mm. um, a plus and then there's also the fact that you can that put these these vertical farms essentially anywhere as long as you have electrical energy that you can put in there and some water supply but because of the circular systems you don't need like a very abundant water supply you can put a vertical farm in the desert or in other climates where you couldn't grow wheat normally and i did want to say i did not like this the sentence in the paper that said unused desert areas potentially offer a vast energy supply for solar farms in the region I thought like the idea of deserts being unused kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Like deserts, deserts are their own ecosystem. It's not just yeah, yeah. It's not being used by people right now. But like maybe we should stay out of the deserts because there are other things living in the desert which would like to say anyway. Yeah. Um, but that is also another benefit of the vertical farms. If you're going, if you're building up, you are damaging less natural the the few amounts of natural environment we have left in order to make more farming land and this is this is currently a problem in the world that we are increasing our farming land and to do this we're cutting into rainforests and we're cutting into you know other ecosystems so that's that's one argument for um the vertical farms and it can also say hey this six to one or this 46 to one ratio depending on how you look at it is not great but what if you factor in the value of not you know removing the last rainforest that we have um in Tasmania or not deciding that we're now going to start farming on Antarctica or something. I and mean, maybe that then increases the value. I personally am always a little bit concerned about thought processes which try to throw up solutions um, when I think instead of working on a way to fix a problem, we should try to prevent the problem. And this is kind of an issue I have with, with space travel. You know, let's go and find another planet that we can occupy um, with a lot of these kind of carbon sequestration ideas. Like, Yes, I, we probably will need to do these things in the end because we are a terrible, terrible race as far as, as destroying things at a rapid race go, uh, rate goes. Um, 
but there are other things we could also be doing, I guess. Um, yeah, um, I, f I feel the same way. To me, this looks or this sounds like throwing technology at a very complex issue um, and saying like, look, we solved it. We just need to buy this like very expensive machines and then everything will be fine. And we've seen that in like other areas as well, where people come up with like, very high-tech solutions and promising that this will be enough to make up for the issues that we have. I don't know, like some crazy carbon capture um, uh, ideas yeah. that people have. They they fall into the, uh, a similar realm of of coming up with like very like out there ideas um, to fix the the symptoms that we cause instead of the underlying problems that are causing these uh, these symptoms. But I guess that's so the pro I think the main problem that you and I have so. It, it, ignoring the the hypothetical element of this i think the main problem that both of us have is that it doesn't make any sense for us to to burn fossil fuels to grow plants like that's a very yeah. upsetting concept to both of us although of course we understand that it's very important to have food security but if this could be done in a way that was solar powered that had some sort of renewable energy then i like this is suddenly much more appealing isn't it if you can find a way to do this in because now you don't have that that damage, that extra environmental burden, and in fact, you might be having less of an environmental burden because you're taking up less space. In any case, I think so. This is a modeling paper, but I think it's more than just a modeling paper. It's a thought exercise. It's it's really kind of a yeah. It's supposed to throw hypotheticals at us to kind of think about the the situation more, and also think about the problem that's going to cause us to need these solutions. Um, and I think that's really important. So to think about how we're developing as a race. Um, and there it has some value, right? This is, yeah, it's a it, discussion piece. It can be, and I think vertical farming can take a niche role in our sort of mix of how we produce foods in the future. But I sort of want to like stress that I believe much more that um, we will have to have a complex change in the system to really get um, a future-proof food supply system. And I don't think that vertical farming will be enough for that. I'd rather bet money on reducing food demand by going veggie, for example, and therefore having less land that's needed to produce the food for animals. And instead, we have more land that we can actually like directly eat the products of. Um, we can increase our production by maybe using genome-edited crops or other like modern uh, new breeding technologies. Um, there's a big fact that's always mentioned is the reduction of waste, which involves like changing our farming and consumption practices. And then also the development of sustainable low-input ag agriculture, which is also something that gets more and more attention these days, um, like new crop rotation models that require less fertilizer and less pesticides or um, lead to less soil erosion. And all of these things are so much more complex than just like a simple technical solution. Like a vertical farm is some, something you can explain to anybody who's just say like, look, we stack the plants on top of each other, less land, great. And the things that I just talked about, they're all, each one of those is very complicated and we need all of them together to create a more sustainable food um, food basis food production system um, uh, but that's that's what i would rather like believe in and be in favor of so so would you be would you be pro vertical farm if somebody did if it was solar powered for example would that make you happy? I mean, because now you've got... What happens if it was 50% solar-powered, 50% coal, but you're saving on water, you're saving on um, nitrogen input, which is also a problem for, like, eutrophication and, like, damage of, of um, water weights and stuff like that? Like, 
I mean, this is this thing now where you're balancing up the pros and cons. And this is what happens with any of our future plans where we end up sort of saying, okay, we save on water, but we lose on energy and... You know, we save on human lives potentially. How how can you value a human life relative to I don't know a waterway being healthy? This this is the problem that we always come to when it when it hits you know yeah. sustainability and and the environment. It really comes then down to to me to the absolute numbers that what it would mean then because I know that we we burn diesel to power our tractors to have them plow the fields. Um, but at the same time, coal is one of the worst ways to produce energy in terms of like fine matter in the air and car, uh, fossil uh, like greenhouse gas emissions and so on. So um, it would have to be a very like a, a calculation that's very much in favor of the vertical farm in terms of like energy demand and costs on the environment to to make up for that for me. Um, this is something like, that I always like find really puff- hard that we're now we're now in the situation where we we're trying to compare different measures of sustainability and I think that's really tricky to yeah and I think to close the circle here because I think we can discuss this forever like modeling papers like the one today they are very important to give us some basis to make our arguments uh, on um, people who like either model or compare or figure out like experiments or other ways to standardize conditions to that we can actually compare them because how do you compare like some like a farm running a tractor um, in a specific area to the general concept of vertical farms you can't you need people who do modeling work or analysis work um, or standardized experiments to actually come to a conclusion which one has more impact on the environment and which one is something that we should rather invest our time and money in uh, for the future. Shall we do a word from our sponsor now, Yoram? I mean, not um, actually our sponsor, but... Yeah, <laughs> we. Uh, this is a trailer for a friendly podcast of ours. It's uh, Plantropology, um, a podcast by uh, Vikram Baliga. And um, yeah, here's a little promotion for his podcast. Do you love plants? Don't be silly. Of course you do. You might just not know it yet. I'm Vikram Baliga, the host of the Planthropology Podcast, the show where we dive into the lives and careers of some really cool plant people. Join me each episode as I chat with students, scientists, and professionals in the natural sciences and figure out what keeps them coming back for more. We'll explore their work, the ways they got into their fields, why they love plants and nature so much, and why you should love those things too. Planthropology is laid back and conversational and will keep you laughing and engaged whether you're a scientist or not. Follow along for this adventure into the sciences and keep being really cool plant people. Well, that's just charming. <laughs> I think um, Vikram has a more beautiful voice than us and we should try to speak like Vikram. Yeah, um, please. I think we mentioned the podcast as well already before on the show. I quite we like have, it. Yeah. Um, I listen to almost every episode. I uh, quite enjoy it. So yeah, uh, check it out. We try to do a little bit more feature with uh, other plant podcasts in the future. So you might hear trailers like this in the future from time to time. Um, yeah, and if if you yourself are involved in some sort of um, science communication project, particularly that that's related to plants, please just get in touch with us, and we'll be happy to look into your stuff and also mention it on the show. Yeah. This is where the fun begins. You, this is where the fun. I feel like Yoram should do the first one because he has a title which is called Astrophysicists <laughs> Must Be Stopped and I just need to know what it's about. 
<laughs> yeah, that's pretty much uh, stolen directly from the tweet where I got this from. Um, it's a tweet um, by the user, and I'm stalling for time. Um, it's a tweet by the user Alex Pizzuto um, that's just called Astrophysicists Must Be Stopped because it's about a paper um, that's published to Archive, so um, one of these preprint platforms that has, ha haven't gone through, where the papers haven't gone through peer review yet, um, but a way to like sort of give get your science out there before it's in the in the journals and the paper is called mayonnaise a morphological components analysis pipeline for circumstellar disks and exoplanets imaging in the near infrared i don't really understand most of it like i can understand some of the individual words but i have no idea what it means in combination but the point of that is that they made like the the worst acronym that i have seen in a in a long time um, mayonnaise where the the morphological analysis and you should look at the like the link tweets and there's a screenshot there where they have all of the letters in in capital letters that make up the mayonnaise and you realize that for example in the word in it's the n that's uh going into the um into the acronym they have like yielding separated objects and the separated does not get a thing because that would be mayoz maisonnaise and then the infrared, there's an A from infrared, which is not the letter I think of when I think of infrared. <laughs> but what I like about them and where, again, I uh, uh, they earn some sympathies with me is that they then in their sentence say like, it's mayonnaise or mayo for short. <laughs> so they shortened their acronym, which is a shortening of the long thing. Um, and... I I agree. I think with the original tweet that astro astrophysicists must be stopped. It they they've gone too far um, for naming whatever <laughs> analysis pipeline they have mayonnaise. And I respectfully disagree. I am very much in favor of giving silly names to things. I think it makes me more interested to understand what any of those words. I mean, I can understand the word infrared separated in objects, but pretty much the other words in those. And I'm not sure what's happening there. But I want to know now. And also, once I do learn, I will never forget. And this is particularly true of gene and protein names, where if you have a stupid name associated with your gene of interest, you are much more likely to remember what its actual function is than if it's just called like Duff118A or something like that. I agree. I'm still angry at using the A of infrared for your acronym. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think we're going to have to have a discussion with them about how acronyms work, because this is, <laughs> this is not okay, um, but well done on mayonnaise. <laughs> yeah, um, I have something that's um, not so much related to science particularly, but more to science communication. And I just wanted to give it a quick shout out because um, working in Germany for a while, almost all of my friends and colleagues doing the PhD with me were from a country that was not English speaking as a first language and also not German speaking as a first language. And it was quite interesting when some of them then returned back to their home country or went somewhere else that they had trouble communicating in their own native tongue the science that they could communicate really clearly in English. Um, so there's a article called Physics in a Second Language, and it's just discussing um, with three physicists how to communicate physics in English and then how also to go back to your native tongue and, and re-communicate that. And I think it's um, kind of important because it discusses the fact that um, scientific language is different from the language itself. Um, and this is something that we, we all have to learn as scientists, no matter what our original language is. Do you know what oclupanids are? I know it's not Say like it my favorite Oc plant. Oclupanids. It's or panids. I don't know how you pronounce can it. Oclupanids. 
Is it something from the deep sea? Um, they are generally found as parasitoids on back pastries in supermarkets, hardware stores, and on other pastries. commercial establishments. Um, they have a fascinating life cycle uh, that is unfortunately severely under-researched. And this is something I also found uh, through Twitter. It's from a website um, that we're linking. It's the HORG, the Holotypic Octopanid Research Group, a database of synthetic taxonomy. And I want you to click on the link and see what it actually is. Um, Me? Yeah. And also, like, our listeners, they can do that as well now to spoil it themselves. <laughs> <laughs> um, Yep. What it actually is are the little plastic tabs you need to, uh, you use to close uh, bread pa uh, plastic bags for bread. And somebody made up an entire research field around that. And um, I quite like if you then on the right, there's a link to the taxonomy of them. Um, you have a diagram where you see how they are all part of the, um, the kingdom of Microsynthera. <laughs> um, then you mm -hmm. have the Aluminestrea, which is the alumin aluminum-based um, organisms the plasticea and the elasticea um, and then they have um, a proposed phylogeny of them and mapping all of the different shapes of these bread closing tabs i like we don't have them really in germany i think they're very uh, u.s american thing um, but i just quite like how with how much effort they went through this there's also a morphology where they describe um the oral hook and the oral groove of them, the dental pros, uh, process of them, so mapping out all of the different organs of these species and then also going uh, in the growth and development section into their replication where they have uh, very rare images of attached oclopanids um, <laughs> when they are all like stuck together and they're hypothesizing about their um, life cycle, which is very under-researched. Do we know if this is one person's hobby or if it's actually a group of people? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I have no further information about this. Um, I I don't know what I would find worse, if it's like a group effort or like a single person um, who's very bored because... Um, no, nothing is worse. This is fantastic. I don't think... I mean, there's no shame in either. That's true. There's no shame in it. I'm just... Um, it's amazing. Really great. And I haven't There's also pseudo oculoplanets. What's that? Oh, things that are pretending to be <laughs> oculoplanets. So like um, tags from from plants or something. <laughs> Amazing. Um, yeah, and somewhere I, I forgot where they explained the name um, because it's I think it comes from like panet stands for bread and oculo for closing. I think um, it's like oh. the bread closing genus. Wow. Okay, so that's why the, the pseudo-oclopanids, they, oclopanids, I can't even say it, they don't close bread. They are, um, yeah. yeah, doing other things. There's Amazing. So, that's super great. So many How did you find them. out about that? I, I found that on, on Twitter. Somebody like posted that on Twitter and then I like followed through to the website. Yeah, they have like entire um, taxonomy of them and of so many individual bread tags. Um The uh, Captospinula elongatus, or the common name, is the long spiny catcher. Um, and found in white and red, sometimes possesses lateral processes, size 44 by 22 millimeters. Um, for, all, for all its large size, C. elongatus, which is a nice callback to something in the past, is surprisingly fragile. It's... Um, Yeah, check it out. It's if you are a little bit of a biology nerd, I think you can spend many hours just reading through this completely made-up section of research. I was having a discussion recently about the use of um, 
like Mrs. Mr. Ms. These kind of um, I don't even know what they're called properly. It's like it's pronouns, but it's um, the title. Title yeah. pronouns, titles maybe, um, and in German it's kind of okay because you mostly have like Herr for men and and Frau for like women, um, and that that has some extra issues which we'll get to in a second. But in English it's a bit more problematic because you have um, Miss, which means you're unmarried. Mrs., which means you're married, and then there's Ms., which used to basically only mean you were divorced, but now it's like, bugger off, my marital status is not your business. Um, and I personally find it annoying and upsetting when I get called a Mrs. because I'm not married, and also I'm a freaking doctor, so like, if you're gonna like start calling me <laughs> Mrs., which means I am the, the belonging possession of a Mr., this annoys me. Anyway, um, I was thinking about this kind of more generally about how we can we can um, do this because obviously, as I said, there are even bigger problems beyond just the marital status, but also um, the gender binary of these terms. So not everybody falls into the category of being either a man or a woman, a Mr. or Mrs. or a Ms. even. Um, and I was looking up some some alternatives and one that came up is ind, like individual basically, so like indtegan. Um, Mao, I'm not really sure where Mao comes from. This is like a German um, thing so you're maybe you know the root of why m-a-u yeah oh, maybe man man and frau together like mal yeah. for man yeah, frau, frau. Man, frau and this mal yeah i would say that's probably still a bit binary because it's like man plus frau but it's ignoring people who don't fall into either of those categories yeah. and then my favorite was per which i would guess is from person yeah um so p-e-r but i like the idea of like being p-u-r-r like per tegan um and anyway, this is basically has a similar idea to um, the like the communist idea of calling people comrade because it removes the need for status. But in this case, you can also remove the need for like marital status, for hierarchy, um, and for gender. And honestly, I would really like that this is something that we do because, yeah, I think it's it's kind of uncool the, the system we have in in most languages. Um, definitely in English and in German, there are some some problems, different problems in each of those. Um, so, yeah, I think this is. I'm, I'm curious to see how we move. Yours yeah, is my my favorite thing uh, is from Sweden, where they have the pronouns "han," which is he, and "hon," which is she, and they introduced uh, actually a couple of years ago now. So the new story I found here is from 2015. They introduced "hen," which is in between, and which just um, is for anybody who you don't know the gender of. You just use "hen." I think it's an equ yeah. equivalent to the "they" in English, but they introduced like a completely new word, and they started actually teaching that from kindergarten age on um, they introduced that to their official dictionaries and they also started to use that in teaching very early on so that um, there's a whole new generation growing up using that new word um, and of course there was like backlash from like older people and so on um, but they managed to introduce that um, because they had a very like like firm like strategy of uh, introducing that very early on into spoken language yeah, and I think that's a problem. Um, Yoram and I have just been discussing this for a while now, off air, but um, we're, we're not used to doing these things yet. We do have our traditional ways of speaking, and it sounds unfamiliar to do them, but I think this is something, a clear direction we need to go in, just because there's no reason when you first meet me why you should be deciding where I am in relation to you, like hierarchically, what my marital status is, what my gender, like, you don't need to know anything about me. You can just say my name, um, but we still have this weird thing where we don't always say people's first name or their surname. So, like a neutral title is it's, kind of a nice idea. 
it's a new culture technology that we have what culture technique i don't know what the right uh translation is from the german word of it but anyway like it's a new like way of using our culture that we have to learn um of the, the, yeah, the way and language, we are interacting language does with mean each something others. in the end yeah yeah so i mean there there is even if the the meaning has changed over time things have roots things have a background so language does so it's it's nice to know. um anyway just if you are interested um i found in this process that there's something called non-binary wiki which can answer all your questions about um non-binary gender and i think that was quite an interesting resource for me who is still quite ignorant about these things my, my, my next title of the next segment um, is taken, taken from that 70s show and it's very fitting for the off-air talk that we just had although we, we didn't really fight but I called it is that what we're going to do today we're going to fight um, and it's it's mostly I want to mention it and we don't really have to go into detail here there is um, published in Nature now an official call to change gene names so that Excel won't mess them up anymore <laughs> so March 1 is changed to now I um uh, oh, it's behind the paywall. I can't tell you, but they changed like um, gene names like March 1 and other, others that were automatically interpreted by Excel to be uh, dates. Um, mm-hmm. So instead of like using different software, they changed the gene names um, to avoid mistakes in the, in the future. And to save us all some time, my stance is like, don't use Excel for gene stuff. And then um, here's Tegan's position. Um, uh, Tegan's position is like, well, actually... Excel has lots of great features. It's an accessible tool to many people to analyze their data. It's a great first step you can use. I never use the word accessible. You have to pay for it. Um, <laughs> sorry, your your argument was never use Excel ever. That was your argument. Yeah. And mine was like, Still maybe you're having problem with Excel because you're using it for the wrong things. Like Excel is great. Just just when it, it for isn't. the right thing anyway i don't want to go into that discussion again we had it like three times already but i want to mention that because it's like published in nature now that they're changing these gene names it's mostly from the human field but i guess this will make its way into other disciplines as well um to make sure that terrible software won't misinterpret your gene names um so if i told you that my age was about 354.5 or 6 what would you say that means I mean, it must be something that's like about a tenth of a year long. Um, I mean, what could that be? Something that's about five weeks long. Five weeks Arabidopsis growing times. Are you 350 Arabidopsis growing seasons long? I'll, give you, I'll give you a clue. If you were born 10 years ago, you would be 392. You would be born at 392. So more than the number that you said before? Yeah. And my parents were born around, I think, 310, something like that. Um, this is from Treehugger, but I actually found it from um, a work friend of mine. And it's stating your age in carbon dioxide. And I guess this kind of came up a little bit earlier in the podcast when we were talking about the idea of atmospheric <laughs> carbon dioxide being like 300 it's parts per PPM. million. Yeah, it's um, how much carbon dioxide there was in the atmosphere in the year you're born. And obviously, this is a bit of an estimate because it kind of fluctuates um, year by year. So it's not precise, but it's kind of looking at the the, the um, smoothed curve since you were born. So Yoram and I were both born in 1988. Yeah, that was around 350 um, parts per million something, or 354 is what I said. Um, I was born later in the year... Um, compared to your arm, so I think I'm more like towards 355. Mm. But I was kind of thinking about this in the context of the experiments we often did, because often we would say that 
yeah, like the normal carbon amount is around 350. And anything like this is what how our growth chambers would be set, or maybe 400 now if we're being a little bit more modern. And something else was um, elevated carbon dioxide concentration, which is now no longer accurate. So we've like passed 410 now. I mean, we're like pushing above 400. But then, I mean, you have to normalize these to older literature in order to kind of make comparisons to what we have. Um, but mm. just as a, a little depressing reminder that the world is changing because we're changing it. Um, Thank and you. Donald Trump is 310, <laughs> I found on the website. So the website is Tree Hugger. We'll put the link um, in the show notes. You can go and check what your age is in carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere. Um, my thing that I um, have for today is a quick guide for scientists on giving comments to journalists. And um, I think it's written by Ed Yong, um, who's a science communicator who has written for many different outlets. This one is on, from National Geographic. Um, and Yeah, he used to have the Not Exactly Rocket Science um, blog. Yeah, which. and he's writing now for multiple outlets like FC, his, his, uh, his thing coming up from time to time from, from different directions. Also, uh, it's a good idea to follow him on Twitter. He's um, very outspoken and has very interesting things that he's sharing. Um, this, I think, is actually um, an older story. This is from 2013. Um, but I wanted to... like send this link to our audience here that I guess are often science related um, and just as a resource um, there's just like a couple of things mentioned what is interesting to a journalist to hear about and what isn't interesting I think the, the general thing to expect is that if you give like you know a couple of hours interview I think we've said this before but you know they will choose a few key quotes so don't expect that every single thing you say is golden will rock up yeah. In in the finished product. Um, I have something, but maybe I think actually I'm wondering if Yoram's already mentioned this before. I found out about it only at a conference a couple of weeks ago, but it might be that Yoram's told me about it and I just ignored him or I, I, I forgot it immediately. Do you know about Witness Tree, Yoram? Witness Tree? No. Mm -hmm. So it's not from me or I forgot, which is also very possible. Um, so there's the Harvard Forest Witness Tree, which is the oldest known living organism on social media. Um, and it's a tree that tweets, basically. So there's a tree. You can't visit in, in person. This is a deliberate thing because it's kind of like off the beaten track and it's got all these sensors and wires attached to it. Um, but there's a whole lot of monitors around this tree, which are um, seeing like it's taking photographs of the tree and, you know, it can post pictures of itself. Um it, it can tweet um, in case I buried that lead there, but also about the environmental conditions and things that are happening. Um, and it is on Twitter, so you can go at a witness tree. Um, and it has almost 9,000 followers, which is a lot more than we have. Um, and it itself is following zero people. So I think Witness Tree has definitely the best ratio of followers to following on um, on Twitter. <laughs> but yeah, basically, it just gives updated information about, you know, it's warm right now. Um, here's what's happening. I'm, I'm doing this. I'm not really growing much because I'm resting because it, it's, it's the cold season. Or, oh, there's been a lot of snow. Or look how much my diameter of my trunk has grown stuff like that um and people can kind of talk to witness tree as well in that it will can give some um i think automatic responses to things i believe hmm. um but yeah i i heard about this at a conference and i think it's a really cool kind of social media like science communication 
project. It's quite a nice idea. Yeah, that's very cool. Um, I'm through with my fun facts for the day. Um, do you have something else that you want to say before we move on to the cat fact? Um, I do have something about COVID very quickly, which is less about COVID and more about something in an article about COVID. So um, those of you who have been following the COVID situation might know that there are some people who seem to have not just symptoms for very long times, but also to be testing positive continuously for a long time period. So um, there's a story now on Medium. We'll put the link up um, in the show notes by Roxanne Kamsi, and it's the mystery of why some people keep testing positive for COVID-19. And it focuses mainly on um, one young person who has had COVID for, or has been in quarantine with COVID for 43 days and keeps on testing positive for COVID. So basically it's not shifting, um, which in itself is, is a bit depressing and a bit scary. But the article then talks about other people who have had viruses for a long time. And this is really interesting to me. So in the very late 60s, there was 14 men and five husky dogs who went to Antarctica. Um, and despite all of them being completely well and healthy when they left, um, some time into it, somebody got a cold. Like they basically started getting a virus and they're, they're isolated. All of them are, they don't have any contact with people. There's no way they can get like this into them but somebody got a cold and within the next two weeks like most of them had this respiratory illness and it's basically the idea of viruses kind of hunkering down and being present in your body um, for longer periods of time and then reappearing so that's quite an interesting um, story itself and then the other story I'm just going to go to it um, which I find quite fascinating is that in 2008 there was a biologist Brian Foy who was um traveling around rural Senegal trying to actually look for mosquitoes. That's what he was studying, I believe. Um, and then he went home um, to Colorado and sometime later he got sick mm -hmm. and his wife got sick. And they both of them had Zika. But Zika is specifically transmitted by a certain type of mosquito and the mosquito that transmits it is not present in Colorado. And they eventually published a scientific report saying that The, the wife of this scientist had got Zika from the scientist because the Zika virus could be transformed via his semen. So on coming back to Colorado, he had sex with his wife and transferred the virus via his semen. And all of this I find like super fascinating, a little bit scary. Um, yes. Definitely put me off having ever having sex again, but we're in COVID isolation, so that's not going to happen anyway. Um, <laughs> but like, I don't know, a really fascinating story and kind of... Yeah, it's yeah. I think it's difficult. It makes <laughs> lingering you wonder, pathogens. Yeah, it makes you wonder about uh, the usefulness of quarantine, right? I mean, it doesn't mean that it's not working. It almost sounds like we should do much longer quarantine, or that we would just we just have to expect that we have will have a certain very small percentage of things that survive quarantine and that will be symptomless but the virus can re-emerge which is scary with like the case numbers that we have and so on so even a small percentage means that there is like a non-zero number of people that will be affected by such an ev uh, event yeah yeah scary. i mean in many in many ways it's not super surprising so i mean i think <laughs> i've complained on this podcast before about urinary tract infections and there's this idea that like if you get a uti you get bacteria that are in your bladder and they can move to your kidneys um, but even if you flush your bladder out with antibiotics, you can get bacteria which kind of persist under a biofilm. 
and they are sort of everything is cleared from the bladder but these guys are kind of sitting there and then they can become active again at a later stage so they're just kind of like hanging out there hiding under a biofilm so that's that's one mechanism and similarly with my my lung problems in the past the reason um i had a small tumor in in the bronchi and the tubes leading down to my lung and the reason i kept on getting recurrent infections of pneumonia and pleurisy was because although my body was fighting the bacteria the final step of getting over pneumonia and pleurisy is basically clearing out your lung physically so you kind of cough out the bacteria effectively and in my case the the tumor was blocking it so small bits of bacterial particles were kind of sitting there and it was fine because my immune system was was fighting things and then at some point it stopped being fine and those bacteria won again and reinvade so like i think this is not really a surprising idea and it really kind of shows the the way that we are a constant filthy petri dish of things that are coming at us from outside and it's just this like um tug of war between our mm-hmm. immune system and like the good bugs inside us which are kind of fighting off all this random stuff that wants to take control of our systems nature you scary sometimes <laughs> like I actually find I, I I guess it is scary but I find it really fascinating as well like I just find this Yeah sh- sure but the idea that every infection everything like nothing is ever truly gone um that it's just at bay and you always have and we often talk about the fact that we just have gradients in biology right we don't have a clear on mm. or off states we have gradients and it's it's exactly the tug winning. of war that you're describing right but it's never a tug of war where then the losing party is completely purged away from the playing ground they're still tugging a little bit but they don't have the power anymore to move the the knot um to the other side but if conditions change, if the immune system on one side is compromised or something else changes, then they might have the strength again to win again at the tug of war. And um, I don't know. I find that like sort of unsettling compared to the to the conventional idea of yeah, I'm I'm getting rid of my cold and then it's gone. Like there's no more virus, there's no more bacteria, there's nothing left. It's just gone um, when it probably isn't. I think we can move on now to the cat fact section, right? Which is titled, and I, it's all already says most of, of it in the title, is that they rediscovered an elephant shrew after 50 years. Do you know what an elephant shrew is? Elephant shrew. Something that's hard yes, to pronounce. It's, it's used in the textbooks as the animal that has like one of these super fast metabolic rates. It has like an insanely hot, fast heart rate and it's tiny, right? Yeah. And it was used as this example of like the um, kind of the trade-off between animal size and metabolic rate. Uh, I didn't know that. I knew just from the article that it's related to elephants. Um, but <laughs> no, it's, it it's, it's a small mouse. Like, it? It's biologically related to them. It also has a trunk. Um, it's not very closely related, but uh, it's called Elephantulus revolii. Um, what do you mean by related, though? Because like technically a plant is related to a human, just like in a very indirect way the, in, i mean they're both the mammals says, elephant shrews or sengis are neither elephants nor shrews but related to artworks elephants and manatees that's what it says i don't know how closely they sit together on the phylogenetic tree um, but they have this like trunk uh like nose where they eat insects with an interesting thing about this is that it was thought to be lost since the 70s because we didn't find them anywhere uh, and now uh, um, an expedition of researchers set a uh, thousand traps at 12 different locations um, 
in an African country in Djibouti and uh, they uh, they caught a couple of these elephant shrews. Um, they baited them with peanut butter and coconut butter mixed with oats and uh, yeast um, and they found them in like live traps. And tuna fish? No tuna fish for them. Um, but uh, yeah, they've, they've found them and what I liked about the story specifically is um, one of the re- uh, one of the research. I don't know if it's from the uh, from the team or another researcher. Anyway, um, they say that when they rediscover lost species, usually um, they just found uh, they just find one or two individuals, and then they have to be very quickly because usually they find them just before they're going extinct uh, when it's mm. one of these like long lost um, individuals. But this time they found them in an area that's very far away from any human activity in a very undisturbed location. And it looks like their habitat is not endangered. So it's sort of a very um, yeah, welcome surprise to find this long lost elephant shrew and also discover that it's, pr- uh, as far as we know now, not uh, threatened by extinction because its habitat is very undisturbed, very far away from humans, will probably remain undisturbed for uh, a rather long time. So, yeah. That's really nice news. Yeah. And it's just like a weird-looking little mousy thing, but it's 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 not a mouse. Yeah, I'm looking at these um, old-school textbook curves, and I think it might just be a normal shrew on one end and an elephant on the other end. And in my mind, I've put them together as an elephant <laughs> shrew. But it's just yeah. like shrew to elephant is the gradient of um, size and metabolic rate. But I'll add the link to that as well. I mean, I have a fox fact, but I feel like you've brought fox facts into the cat fact reign before. So like, I think in the realm before. Um, this was sent by a friend. Um, it's a Berlin specific fact. Uh, I wanted to, I have that in my bookmarks as well, but I chose that- the shrew today. <laughs> but yeah. Okay, it's super cute. There was a, a little foxy um, in Berlin who was found to have more than 100 shoes um, in its possession. So she was just like running around and grabbing people's shoes in Zillendorf, which is a suburb of Berlin. Um, and from the looks of it, she mostly took Crocs. Like there's a photograph, um, we'll link it again. Um, there's a photograph on uh, Twitter and it's basically all of these Crocs style shoes um so maybe she just really hates crocs is yeah, the possibility she did a service to us uh, as humans by removing crocs from circulation so anti-crocs and then the other the other wild animal fact which is also from berlin is the one about the wild boar have you heard <laughs> yeah. this one also yeah. sent from the same friend um there's um from the independent i have here but it's a naked man chases wild boar through public park after swine steals his laptop um and i think the title pretty much has it all um in germany it's pretty common to do fkk so it's like um free body culture um so nudity um like sunbathing and this guy was just sunbathing and a wild boar with with some little piglets by the look of it just picked up his bag and ran off with it so he had to start chasing around um this boy to try and get his laptop back yeah i think he had some food in the bag and the laptop and obviously they went for the food and then ran away with the bag (laughs) there's some very fun pictures of like this naked dude running across um like a patch like a meadow where some other people are that are um uh, closed uh and then he's like this naked guy with a ball which is it's brave like the laptop must have been very important to him because a boar can severely damage you 
um it's one of these like unsuspecting animals where like i i heard a story from hunters where they had the utmost respect for boars because even if you think you shot them and hurt them and you want to try and go in either for the kill or find like the the body of of the animal if they still have energy in them they pretty much like use their teeth to like cut up both your legs and then you bleed out there um so I would have probably said goodbye to my laptop and not have chased that ball. So respect to the man who um, was brave enough to actually chase a very dangerous animal. And apparently um, he had quite a good um, sense of humor about the whole incident because one of the articles that I saw, the original one, said that um, there was a lady who took the photographs, but then she asked his permission and he said, yeah, 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 you can share them um, online. So he he obviously found the whole thing quite funny. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, that has nothing to do with science, but, you know, nudity and um, Berlin, both always in my heart. Yeah. Um, Now, there's something um, that we haven't done before that I want to mention here. I want to give a big thank you to all of those of you who support us by sharing our stuff and spreading the word. It really helps a lot. Um, And I want to put out a special thanks to Anthony and Judith, who recently um, supported us um, through our support page. And uh, it was just very nice to to see how just to to see the appreciation of our of our listeners because very often when you do a project like like what we do you sort of speak into a void and um you don't often hear back and these were especially from anthony we got a very nice message that really warmed my cold cold heart and so i was very um yeah i was very happy about it made my day and that's why i wanted to say thank you also here um in in this environment and um, want to mention that if you want to support us, uh, you can check out plantsandpipettes.com slash support where you find more information. Um, the easiest way, the cheapest way for you is to just like tell people about us. If you know a friend who might be into this sort of thing, just tell them about it and maybe um, we get another listener or two. Um, and as Yoram says, like we really like the messages. So if you even want to just message us and tell us things that you hated about the, the podcast episode or things you disagree with, um, that makes us happy because we know people are out there and we're also happy to discuss different things that you know our audience might want to hear more about. So please do get in contact. Yeah, that's that's pretty much it for today's episode. Um, getting in contact is already the right thing to do because you can find us on social media. You can talk to me on Twitter. Um, that's at Plants Pipettes. On Instagram and on Facebook, we're at Plants and Pipettes. And we also have the website, which is www.plantsandpipettes.com. That's where we publish about two articles per week and our podcast. And you can read, uh, by now, I think I recently checked, I think we have over 150 published articles already. Um, yeah, and so new this week, we had a basic article describing phosphorylation and dephosphorylation and basically... Um, how organisms can control things within their cells and then we also had a nice article about a mediterranean plant which makes really brilliant blue fruits and it doesn't not using colorful pigments but instead using the magic of physics so i reckon go and check that one out and have a read you can rate us on itunes or wherever you can rate podcasts that also helps us to improve visibility and uh, help more people find our show we also have another podcast um, that we're doing with Ellen Earhart. Um, it's called The Plant Book Club. And this month we're reading Braiding Sweetgrass. So if you want to read along with us, um, we'll be releasing that in a few weeks' time. So get buying and get reading. 
Our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross, as always. And thank you for listening and goodbye. Bye.